Hi, I'm Nicole. And I'm Matt. This is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. This week, we follow up on the results of the U.S. election and discuss the implications a Trump administration might have on some important foreign policy issues. We're going to look at U.S. relations with Canada, the EU, and the Middle East, and what changes may or may not be in store. Why did you decide to come out and watch the election? Um, I actually organized the event tonight with the Journalism Society, so um, a lot of talk around our school was uh, students just wanting to come out and watch the election and be able to watch it with their friends, so we thought might as well organize it um, at a place where people can enjoy drinks and food and speak with friends and talk about the election and watch it together. Hi, uh, are you here to watch uh, the U.S. election coverage tonight? Yes, I am, yeah. Uh, what brings you out? I, I work in politics, so a bunch of us got together and we're uh, we're doing our thing, watching the watching the results. Hi, hey. uh, are you out here uh, for an election viewing party tonight? Yeah, yeah, that's what we're doing tonight. Just uh, go down, go down to the pub and uh, just see what see what happens. You know, it's just it's an event, anyways. Um, I am rooting for Hillary, um, just because, like, from my personal perspective, I don't think Trump would be an ideal um, president for the United States. Um, but that's just my personal opinion. I feel like, regardless of the results, we all lose. Why do you feel that way? Because it's a shameful display the last year that we've been through. I am wearing red because I would like for Trump to win, just because I think that, you know, with Hillary, it's almost guaranteed to be another four years of exactly the same as it was under Obama and arguably exactly the same as it was under Bush in terms of foreign policy and all that. And you know exactly what you're going to get. Whereas Trump, yeah, it could be a lot worse, but at least it'll be different. And, and, and like I said, as an observer and as somebody who's interested in these types of things, I would like to see what effects he would have that would be, you know, decisions he would make and see how people react to that. Just because I'm interested in, you know, just, yeah, just politics and, 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 you know, just political movements in general. I think um, because Canada and the United States are so close, just in terms of geography um, and policies in that sense, a lot of things that do happen in the United States or Canada will affect one country or the other. So, um, so whoever's running the United States needs to be a viable candidate to be able to create policies that will help both countries in a sense. But I'll tell you what, I do think regardless of who wins, there'll be riots tonight in America. Wow, that's a bold uh, prediction. Quote me on it. All right, thank you very yeah. much for your time. Good luck. Eh? So those were some of the reactions recorded on the night of the election by our producer. And as you can see, there was a division in opinions even among the few people that we spoke to that night. A lot has been written and analyzed since President-elect Donald Trump won the election last Tuesday on November 8th. And what seems to be apparent from a lot of this analysis is the degree of speculation. So predictions as to what promises his administration will act on and how exactly Trump's leadership will steer the U.S. as a global influence going forwards. Part of this is because there is no history or foundation of Trump's previous work in public office that would allow for any degree of certainty. It is this uncertainty that has many people fearing a Trump administration, especially since it is unclear how his promises and claims during the campaign will actually play out. 
So tonight we get to play fortune teller. As Nicole said, we're going to look at Canada and the EU in particular before we shift our focus to the Middle East. So first to help us start our discussion, we have with us Melissa Haussmann from the Department of Political Science at Carleton University. Melissa Haussmann is a professor of political science. She teaches in both the U.S. and comparative North American fields. Her scholarship has generally focused on questions of women's access to political power in North America. Her research has centered on women's ability to gender public policy and related debates, especially on reproductive rights and healthcare systems. She is particularly interested in the roles played by federalism and supranational mechanisms in affording either opportunities or barriers to women's policy successes. She has held office in the American and International Political Science Associations, as well as in the Association for Canadian Studies in the U.S. She's also previously taught at Suffolk University in Boston, Massachusetts. We've got our guest on the line. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Hausman. Hi, thank you. So to start, we'd like to gauge your reaction to the U.S. election. So were you surprised? I wasn't inherently surprised that he won. I was surprised by the magnitude of the victory and the fact he's gone over 300 electoral college votes. Nobody thought that he really could do that, but obviously he could. Yeah, I think it took a lot of people by surprise. We're certainly hearing that dialogue uh, all across the states, Canada, the rest of the world. We're seeing it somewhat now with the riots. Yeah, I think it took a lot of people by surprise. Uh, for but, sure. Yeah. For sure. Regardless, I think it makes for an interesting episode. So I think we're ready to dive into our first region of interest, the EU. And what we'll try to do is just try to get a general context of what a Trump win might mean for uh, the the. European Union and just Europe as a whole going forwards. Um, what I'd like to do is perhaps try to tie in the Trump win to the growing nationalist trend that seems to be sweeping across Europe at the moment. We've seen Brexit and in a number of European countries, um, right to far right parties have uh, been gaining momentum. So for example, in Austria, there's the right wing Freedom Party and they've made considerable election gains. Um, and going so far as to join the local government in two provinces. In Denmark, the current government relies on the support of the nationalist Danish People's Party. And in Finland, the nationalist Finns Party, their leader is now the foreign minister of Finland. In France, we have the far-right National Front, headed by Marine Le Pen. Right. And um, she's made considerable, or her party has made considerable electoral gains in the regional elections of 2015. And finally, a last example, Hungary, there is the far-right Jobbik party, who is currently polling third in national polls. So, given the similarities between Trump's campaign and right-wing political parties in Europe, could this election perhaps foreshadow an increase in right-wing governments during the next few years? So, are we seeing a trend, perhaps, a, a political shift towards the right? Well, in terms of elections, certainly what you've pointed out indicates that, and we could also add Hungary, which went fairly far right um, over the last, I think I think it was maybe four, four years ago, something like that, and let's not forget Poland. <laughs> you know, there's lots of countries. Um, we have to, I think, separate the political systems in which some of these um, far right parties operate. So in a France or a Poland or something like that, really the prime minister um, 
if they've got the support of both the main governing party but then also some coalition partners, they could do a lot more. I mean, one interesting comparison actually between Trump and the whole Brexit issue is that, as I'm sure you know, the court recently ruled that Theresa May can't just unilaterally lead Britain out of the EU, that she has to consult the legislature, she has to consult the House of Commons. And it's quite interesting that, of course, the U.S. separation of powers says exactly the same thing. So, as I've said a lot during this campaign, I think that basically Trump is going to find himself rather frustrated by the very little latitude he has to do any of this stuff he said he's going to do on his own. Yeah, uh, these constraints, I think, do at times act in a way that can constrain right-wing political parties, but... Or any party, for that matter. Or any party, certainly, yeah. Right, but given that people seem to be worried, and legitimately so, in terms of right-wing parties, I mean, again, I guess we need to separate structure of government, in which a lot of times, at least in separation of power systems, or, say, a Westminster system, in which a ruling party might have a minority government, not a majority government, where their actions are constrained. The problem is, with Trump is that a lot of the, let's say, less thoughtful (laughs) elements of the U.S. electorate are now, you know, resorting to vigilantism. And so we've had President Obama being very clear and also, theoretically, Trump saying stop it, even as he does this, you know, nodding and winking by appointing Bannon as one of his chief advisors. So he's walking a bit of a tightrope. But I would say, yes, we do have to distinguish between elite politics and the structures in which they're played out and are there constraints versus people taking their cue from some of these statements and, I think, reading um, the statements as a legitimation of their actions. Absolutely. And it's interesting that you raise that point. Uh, I remember reading, I don't have the stats on this, but there has been an upsurge in... uh, what many people are calling racist violence in Britain following the Brexit vote. And a lot of it has been tied in the media to this sort of legitimation of right-wing ideologies and uh, just the right-wing stance in general. So I'm, I'm not sure if uh, we'll see that in the States following this or, or if there will be no real change. It's difficult oh, to no, say. Oh, no, we're already seeing it. The U.S. Um, news has been reporting it really since about November 9th. There are... Um, more incidents of anti, in, in particular anti-Muslim violence. It's it's already being recorded, unfortunately. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's very challenging. So just to bring it back to Europe a little bit here, Trump has criticized his European counterparts and has said that European countries should be paying more for groups like NATO and has said that the U.S. might even leave the alliance. And Trump has undermined the legitimacy of the European Union and its leaders in the past. Uh, He's expressed his support for Brexit after the U.K. referendum in June. So going forward, how do you think he'll approach these relations, uh, particularly in regards to the legitimacy of the European Union and what effects that might have uh, both for Europe and the states? Well, with regard to NATO... President Obama, apparently, who serves as Trump's translator on some issues um, right now, basically said that oh, that um, Trump is committed to staying in NATO. So we've heard it via President Obama anyway. Um, again, with regard to the EU, one is, I think, going to still have to distinguish between what he sort of says when he shoots from the hip versus what he's actually able to accomplish. And 
it's really an unknown factor. I mean, with both with many politicians, we can say, oh yeah, you know, they were in government from X year to Y year, and we know what they did. Well, he's a complete unknown in that sense. And again, I think the EU piece, it's going to also rest on whether May can convince the House of Commons to um, go along with her. So, you know, that part's an unknown and a rather significant obstacle. Last year, to turn away from uh, politics, well, of course not away from politics, but away from defense issues, we could look here at the Paris Climate Agreement, which was signed uh, last year at COP21 and actually just entered into force this past month. It was a landmark climate agreement, and Trump's administration and Trump himself has been uh, rather vocal about his stance on climate change as a whole and has even called it a Chinese hoax. So it would seem that a Trump administration does not necessarily have an interest in maintaining its Paris Agreement commitments moving forward, and these commitments do advance global climate action, trying to mitigate the effects of climate change on different regions in the world as well as reduce emissions of harmful substances that exacerbate climate change. So is the agreement truly dead now if the U.S. withdraws its support? And what might this withdrawal, if it does or does not happen, have on the global climate change policy framework? Well, I wouldn't think that it would be dead if the U.S. withdrew its support. We do know that um, the U.S. is actually, without signing the Kyoto Accord, did more on climate change than a lot of other countries um, including the one we happen to be in. So there is a distinction sometimes between signing things and taking action. But hopefully the countries that are some of the worst polluters that are still really in love with coal and some of the worst um, fossil fuels would basically stay in the, in the agreement and, you know, uh, work to um, reduce their emissions that way. I mean, one thing I have to say just relatedly that I'm very troubled by, and again, this is the di- dichotomy between political rhetoric and versus action, I guess, on the ground, is that Obama and others have campaigned on, of course, American energy independence. Well, unfortunately, what that American energy independence involves is pumping arsenic and all sorts of noxious chemicals into the ground in fracking in terms of releasing natural gas. And Oklahoma seems to be one of the worst hit. It's had an enormous upsurge in earthquakes. So again, at the level of political rhetoric, we hear one thing, but then the actual actions taken on the ground may be the opposite. So on one hand, Trump's saying, yeah, I hate the the climate agreement. But on the other hand, previously, the U.S. did a lot to um, reduce its emissions. Again, on the third hand, Obama has said American energy independence, but on the fourth hand, that's actually um, very bad for the environment. So it's a really complicated issue in terms of what gets done and who we give the responsibility to. It certainly is. So given that Canada is a party to the Paris Agreement, um, I think this is kind of a good launching point to bring us closer to home. And we'd like to just briefly discuss you know, potential U.S. foreign policy impacts on Canada, given the Trump election. Um, as we heard at the top of the show, Canadians are quite invested in the in uh, U.S. politics, and a number spent all night watching the election last Tuesday. So before we dive into further discussion, uh, we just wanted to play a clip from former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau on why exactly Canada has such a stake in the results of U.S. elections. If these policies, in many instances 
either reflect or take into account the proximity of the United States. Living next to you is in some ways like sleeping with an elephant. No matter how friendly or even tempered is the beast, if I can call it that, one is affected by every twitch and grunt. <laughs> Quickly, I'm going to just pull out a few stats on Canadian trade, NAFTA, sure. uh, just to set the stage for our listeners. So, Canada-U.S. trade in goods and services in 2015 reached close to uh, $881 billion. The United States is the number one destination for Canadian merchandise exports, again in 2015. And Canada is the main foreign supplier of energy to the United States. So, obviously, the relationship is is quite intertwined it's it's evident that u.s canada trade plays an enormous role just in our own economy um to kind of give an idea of that one in five jobs in canada are related to exports and a number of them tied specifically to trade with the u.s so given trump's uh, overt rhetoric surrounding nafta about ripping up the agreement the very least renegotiating it because he's claimed that it's such a bad deal how do you think, you know, a renegotiation or a ripping up of the agreement, what sort of impact would that have on the Canadian economy? Wow. Well, lots of... Loaded lots question, of yeah. <laughs> yeah, lots of embedded questions in there. Um, first of all, I, I don't think he would be able to unilaterally rip the agreement up. So again, as I always say, one has to look at the kabuki theater politics in terms of the actions taken on stage versus what they actually represent and what's going on behind the scenes. So, again, the U.S. and Canada have been each other's number one trading partners for a long time. This is nothing new. And particularly, of course, in energy, but not limited to it. And yet previous presidents, both Republican and Democratic, have run around saying, oh, yeah, the U.S. has to be energy independent because we don't want to be dependent on these nasty foreign governments. And every time they say that, I yell at the TV and say, well, guess what? You know, we get most of it from Canada, so cut it out already. So all I'm saying there is this kabuki nature of politics, what these folks are saying to appeal to their base versus what they actually do when they're in office can be very distinct. I mean, the other piece is that were he to try to renegotiate NAFTA, given that it was, in fact, passed through the Senate, there are a number of senators whom I think would file suit and provide a lot of stumbling blocks. I mean, this is the very real nature of checks and balances in the U.S. Constitution and the Senate's role of advice and consent. So, again, it's, it's much easier to do when you're sort of yelling it from a stage than when you actually get into the nitty-gritty of um, policy and looking at all the incredible fine-tuning and the dance between legislature and executive in the United States Constitution. The other piece is that there was a very interesting report released by the Brookings Institution in D.C., which said that even if Trump wants to continue with the anti-TPP stance of the current Republicans in Congress, and most of them are coming back in January, nothing new there. But basically, the other nations that have signed the TPP could just exclude the U.S. from the TPP and go on with their lives. Now, that would be really stupid for the U.S. to do, but um, if Trump is insistent on taking the U.S. down that dumb path, you know, I, I suppose... He could try, but again, the legislature might, in fact, put some barriers um, in his way. 
Um, you know, again, the other piece, I mean, there's there's a zillion points I could really take up here, but another piece, of course, is that all of a sudden Trump became the champion of the little guy in this election, whereby, on the other hand, he really hadn't been known to, to do that when he was um, employing some of them and filing bankruptcy and throwing them out of work. So it's kind of interesting that on the one hand, these international agreements are hurting the little guy where he's never given much um, credence to the little guy's problems before. So one has to wonder what's behind this. Is there another perhaps reason for why he's being so anti-trade? Because, again, from his own life history and his own um, global empire, frankly, it just it makes no intellectual sense. So one has to wonder why this stance. Is it just an electoral appeal or is there something else going on there? I think a lot of people are wondering when it comes to Trump these days. And for our listeners, TPP is a trans-Pacific partnership. The prime minister has invited Trump to, in fact, renegotiate NAFTA. So could there be any benefit to Canada in revising the agreement? It's hard to say in the abstract without knowing which chapters they would be talking about, but I assume that if Prime Minister Trudeau is open to it, then there's probably something he sees to be gained by reopening it, but it's really hard to say globally and in the abstract without knowing which chapters would be involved. Certainly. I suppose it might also be an instance of the Prime Minister perhaps preemptively offering the renegotiation in the hopes that we would not go down, you know, the ripping up of NAFTA. (laughs) Yeah, just look at it around the margins rather than wholesale tearing in half or something, yeah. I mean, of course, the agreement's too thick to tear in half, but it's a nice image, I suppose, if you're Trump. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for your time today, Professor Hosman. We appreciate your perspective on uh, the many topics that we've discussed. Oh, sure. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you again, Professor. I know you're not feeling well today, and we really appreciate you coming and talking to us. No, happy to do it. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Okay, bye. That was our conversation with Melissa Hausman from the Political Science Department at Carleton University. After the break, we'll shift to Middle East and bring our next guest, possibly our youngest one yet, for more on the potential direction of U.S. foreign policy in the region. Talks recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. So we'll begin our discussion today with a particularly hotbed topic. It's been in the news a lot recently, uh, oftentimes in conjunction with discussions around the Trump administration and what we can expect over the next four years. Uh, So I'm going to let Matt introduce our guest today, uh, who will let us hopefully shine a light on this region of interest. Yeah, so as Nicole said, we'll be touching on the Middle East, and within this discussion, we'll try and touch on a number of uh, issues. 
So we're joined today by Uri Morantz, and Uri is a PhD candidate in the Conflict Management and Resolution Program at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. So his research is focused on foreign policy, the geopolitics of the energy conflict security nexus, and civil war intervention. Uri's regional focus is on the Middle East and the Islamic world, and his work deals with energy politics and the economics of primarily oil and gas resources. Welcome to Policy Talks. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome, Mary. Uh, so our episode today is a little bit special. Normally we have rather concrete policies that we can use to compare against a certain situation and extrapolate what might happen, what the implications might be. But as we have said, with the Trump administration, it's a little difficult to do this and to really isolate those concrete policies. So there is going to be a bit of uncertainty in our discussion today. Uh, and we're going to undertake a little exercise in speculation uh, if you will, as we turn to what is perhaps one of the most contentious international relationships today, the U.S. and the Middle East. So we'll set the context now a little bit for why this is a region of interest and what uh, issue areas can come up. So I think uh, first off, we'll speak on the Iran deal. Um, the Iran deal has been in the news since it passed in 2015. Uh, but just to give our listeners a bit of context, the Iran nuclear deal or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action is an international agreement on the nuclear program of Iran that was reached between Iran and the P5 plus one, and by that we mean the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, China, France, Russia, the United Kingdom, and the United States, and the plus one is Germany. So uh, under the deal, Iran roughly um, was to eliminate and reduce its uranium stockpiles, as well as reduce its number of gas centrifuges that could possibly contribute uh, to uh, the the development of a nuclear weapon. So to monitor and verify Iran's compliance under the deal, um, the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, would have regular access to all Iranian nuclear facilities. So in return for abiding by its commitments under the deal, um, Iran would see a lifting of the economic sanctions that have been imposed on the nation by the international community. So many have hailed the deal as a significant development and in uh, reducing tension in the region, and a step towards curbing the nuclear ambitions and the threat posed by Iran. Okay, and I think it's worth noting here that uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been increasingly upset with the Obama administration and has even spoken out against the Iran deal in Congress. So do we want to discuss a little bit here on uh, perhaps Trump's approach to ISIS, which is another main issue uh, in the region. So just to kind of set the stage on, on Syria and ISIS, um, though ISIS seems to be weakening uh, in the past few months following you know, successful military operations by uh, Iraqi forces, coalition members, um, Assad's forces, Russia, there's still a considerable amount of support in the U.S. for increased intervention against the group. So Trump's rhetoric surrounding ISIS um, has been rather vague. He himself uh, stated that the point being he doesn't wish to give ISIS any indication as to, you know, the particulars of his plan so that they're unable to effectively, you know, halt whatever he has cooking up for them. Uh, but the gist of it is he wants stronger intervention against ISIS. And to kind of scale that back, we'll just talk briefly about the current U.S. Um, involvement in the region. Um, so currently, the United States is supporting around 30,000 Syrian Kurdish and Syrian Arab fighters, who last weekend, they announced that they were going to um, open up a new phase of the battle. 
and that was to target the ISIS capital of Raqqa. And this is to occur in conjunction with the current offensive in Iraq against the ISIS stronghold of Mosul. Um, in addition to this, the CIA uh, has a covert program by which they are arming anti-Assad rebels. And this is in line with U.S. interests to destabilize the uh, Assad regime. An issue has arisen following Russia's entry into the conflict, whereas a number of these so-called moderate rebel groups, um, perhaps by necessity, have forced or have been forced to uh, enter into rough battlefield alliances with more extreme elements, such as the Al Nusra Front, rebranded to uh, Fateh Al Asham, and um, Al Qaeda in Syria. So this has had the effect of allowing. Assad and Russia to argue that they are in fact targeting uh, terrorists. They're conflating all rebels essentially as terrorists. Um, so President-elect Donald J. Trump actually was quoted as saying that he seeks to abandon the American effort to support these so-called moderate uh, rebel groups in Syria who are battling the government of uh, President Assad. And he largely falls back on the argument that we have no idea who these groups are, who, you know, who the membership is, what their true goals are, uh, and we're essentially funding them, sending them weapons. And he argues that that's just having a greater destabilizing effect. Absolutely. So uh, to clarify Trump's position on several of these issues, uh, thank you, Matt, for discussing that. That was fantastic. Um, in terms of ISIS, Trump has stated that he wants to bomb ISIS, but he has not given his full plan for doing this because he wants to maintain the element of surprise when attacking. In regards to the Iran deal, he is against it, and he wants the U.S. to improve relations with Israel. So perhaps we can jump into discussions now with you, Uri. So do you think the relationship between Israel and the U.S. will improve under the Trump administration? Well, um, that's an interesting question. I think um, the relationship is already a strong one, uh, going back all the way to the 1960s, for example, and specifically the 1967 war. Um, earlier this year in September, actually, the U.S. and Israel signed a historic uh, military aid deal, $38 billion over 10 years, which is the largest such aid deal that the U.S. has ever done in its history and a significant upgrade from what Israel was receiving previously. So already I think that speaks to the strength of the relationship, no matter who took office. Um, and in fact, the U.S. also hosts a significant Jewish uh, diaspora population the largest outside Israel, and depending on how you count, some would say even more uh, Jewish citizens in the U.S. than in Israel. Um, so beyond that, you know, sharing uh, political uh, characteristics, different cultural values, um, I think the special relationship would have remained intact um, no matter who came in office. But what a Trump presidency means for the Arab-Israeli conflict in particular is still an open question. Um, I think this peace process has essentially gone nowhere in the last few years. And so it's really a question of how much influence the U.S. Uh, itself has as a you know, third party on this uh, conflict. Um, so, yeah. I have a quote, actually, to bring sure. in on this you know, specific issue. The Israeli education minister, Neftali Bennett, who's also the leader of the pro-settler Jewish Home Party, is quoted as saying, the victory of Trump is a huge opportunity for Israel to immediately announce that it renounces the idea of establishing Palestine in the heart of the country. So it's essentially arguing that this is the death of the two-state solution. 
what are your views on that? Do you think that's just kind of extreme rhetoric? Or would you argue that perhaps some of Trump's own rhetoric at least indicates that he would support Israel to that extent? Right. So I think it's uh, no surprise that there's a certain um, sympathy on the uh, conservative end of the spectrum, whether it's in the U.S. or in Israel. And so Naftali Bennett from the Jewish Home Party and uh, new President Trump will obviously see eye to eye on some of these issues. Um, It's true that uh, Trump has said in the past that he wouldn't oppose further settlement in the West Bank which would represent a serious departure from uh, consistent U.S. policy on this issue and U.S. pressure going back way before Obama. Um, And obviously this would provoke significant outrage from the Palestinians, from the Arab world, um, and beyond. But um, I think beyond uh, Bennett's statements and, um, you know, what Israel is likely to do, it's important to look at this from within the Israeli context as well. Because inside Israel, this is a really deeply divisive issue. And I think it's um, more interesting how Israel is going to handle this internally, because there is a significant um, division in terms of left-wing and right-wing politics. And uh, some members of the current right-wing coalition government in Israel are actually defying the prime minister in trying to push a bill through the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, to set a precedent for legalizing um, certain outposts, turning them into settlements, and effectively, as the argument goes, uh, expropriating more Palestinian land. So how Israel handles this internally, given that uh, Israel's attorney general has already said that this would violate previous Supreme Court rulings and that any bill would be indefensible as law, um, I think this latest uh, drama you know, in in terms of internal Israeli politics could actually threaten to bring down uh, the coalition government. So watching how Israel debates this internally could actually inform us more, I think, than Trump's position and uh, U.S. policy. Playing on that issue of of division within Israel, um, my limited research has kind of indicated that that might also extend to the threat posed by the Iran deal. Um, I, have a, I have a couple quotes here by the former head of the Israeli military intelligence, uh, Amos Yadlin, as well as Ephraim Halivi, who is the former chief of Israel's foreign intelligence agency, the Mossad. And both these gentlemen seem to have a convergence on the notion that the deal, while perhaps problematic in some senses, has effectively pushed back the, the Iranian nuclear threat by at least a decade. Whereas in comparison, you have Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has been very vocally opposed to the deal, um, which has seemingly been reflected in Trump's own rhetoric, who has called the deal a disaster and has pointed to it, you know, seemingly empowering Iran as a regional actor. Um, so I'm wondering if you could comment on that. Is, is that another issue uh, in, in you know, domestic Israeli politics at the moment, or has that changed with Trump's coming to power? The uh, Iran nuclear deal? Yes. Um, I think that's probably more of a consensus issue within Israel, that it's um, opposed to uh, the Iran nuclear deal. Um, I guess there are more uh, sympathetic uh, groups that do see some merit, um, along with the Europeans and other contingents within um, the U.S. government. But um, I think that the... Uh, question of um, 
the nuclear deal is much less contentious than the question of settlements, for example, or other so-called uh, final status issues in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Um, for example, the question of Jerusalem, right? Um, it's been kind of a sticking point in uh, final status negotiations, and it's been also kind of an American carrot that's been dangling in front of Israel's nose since the 1990s, right? This is obviously a sensitive issue, uh, cuts to the core of Jewish and Palestinian uh, nationalism. Both sides claim it as their capital. And every U.S. president since Clinton has promised to move the capital from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. But they've essentially kicked the can down the road, um, delaying the decision and saying they're going to address it when the peace talks have come to some kind of resolution and uh, not beforehand. So it's interesting that Trump actually, this was one of his most uh, famous promises, I guess, because he was most outspoken about this to the Jewish community. Um, but like so many of his other promises, um, he's now starting to dial them back, right? Whether it's NATO and uh, other member states having to pay their fair share, whether it's uh, repealing Obamacare entirely, and now it's more a question of reforming. And the wall turning into yeah, a fence. Yeah, exactly. It can be a fence in some places. Maybe it can be virtual in others. So he's already dialing this one back as well, it seems. Now he's saying that he'll do this under consensus. Whether that means consensus among his cabinet or international consensus is still kind of a mystery. So here, I think it's worth paying attention to who Trump picks to fill the top uh, posts in his administration. Uh, he brands himself as this political outsider. You know, he's never held uh, political office or military office. He says he's going to take a hands-off business-like approach. So who he delegates may have significant authority on these questions. You know, his vice president, uh, Pence, some top potential picks for secretary of state like uh, Gingrich, Giuliani, Bolton. These are all pro-Israel figures. So um, in addition to that, with some of his key advisors throughout the campaign um, also being staunch conservatives and usually pro-Israel figures, um, their guidance on this question and Middle East policy could be very informative. Well, thank you. How do you think Trump will approach the conflicts in Syria and Iraq, given his stance in the region? Right. So that's another interesting question. Um, Trump's been pretty categorical. I think, in calling the uh, Obama-Clinton legacy in the Syrian and Iraqi civil wars a pretty dismal failure. But um, it's also kind of a question what he would do differently, right? He's called to bomb them all, right? And whatever that means, it seems like he's more interested in isolationism as a general guiding principle than getting more involved in the Middle East. So... Aside from pulling whatever U.S. support currently exists for so-called moderate factions in the Syrian civil war, which actually isn't such a bad idea. I mean, he's got a point when he says we don't really know who we're supporting and what would replace the al-Assad regime if it were to fall, because there would obviously be a lot of uh, follow-up fighting, a lot of sort of claiming territory, and uh, a lot of interested outsiders uh, if that were to happen. Um, besides for that, uh, obviously he wouldn't support the Syrian government. There's no way that Trump would come out in favor of that. But it does seem likely that he'd take a more hands-off approach to the situation, right? Um, I think the U.S. is likely to continue targeting jihadist elements like the Islamic State 
and Al-Qaeda's affiliates that you mentioned earlier, Jabhat al-Nusra, now rebranded, Jabhat Fatah al-Sham. And um, the U.S. actually just added this recent group to its counter-terror hit list. So it makes sense that they would continue in this direction. But here, he's also likely to find more common ground with Russia um, than Obama did, since he's already praised Russia and even Iran in Syria for fighting the Islamic State. And um, earlier today, apparently, he spoke with Obama by phone, and they agreed they have a common enemy in international terrorism. They'd like to work together on another resolution on Syria. So the change in tone of U.S.-Russian relations could actually matter a lot here. And uh, thinking about Islamic State generally, I think um, Iraq presents a lot of difficulties here, too. As you know, the civil war pretty much spread from Syria to Iraq, a lot of instability. Um, the battle for Mosul that you mentioned earlier is looking extremely tough, uh, similar in scale to another major contested city in Syria, Aleppo. You know, a lot of civilians, a lot of human shields, um, a lot of hostages potentially, and most of the fighting is taking place in urban areas. Uh, it looks like actually the battle for Mosul will still be ongoing when Trump takes office, so it'll be interesting to see what he does there. But here, at least in Iraq, the U.S. and its allies are intervening in support of a government that's recognized as much more legitimate than the Syrian government, right? The uh, influence of Iran, I think, and the issue of Kurdish separatism are going to come to be much bigger issues in Iraq once Islamic State is kicked out uh, and probably retreats back to Syria. Um, but at least this common objective of removing Islamic State from Iraq unites pretty much everybody on the ground in Iraq that's interested in seeing that country uh, do better. So in Syria, the picture is much more complicated. I mean, Turkey and Saudi Arabia, a lot of other regional actors are taking more decisive roles, uh, supporting some rebel groups. The U.S. is supporting others right now. The Russians and Iranians are also in the mix. So uh, here again, I think we come back to the question of what would Syria look like after a civil war, right? After a settlement or after the current government is out of power. So maybe let's just clarify this a little bit then there. We've talked a little bit about the support the U.S. has been providing in the region and the interventions they have made in the region. Given Trump's position, and uh, you mentioned something earlier about his stance aligning somewhat with uh, Russian's position in the region, and I thought that was very interesting. But uh, given this, how do you think this policy of U.S. intervention in the region might change or stay the same? Like, what might this intervention look like in the future, or will it remain on the track that it has been? Yeah, just to kind of build off that point, um, from what I gather, you're saying then that, you know, regardless of Trump's fiery rhetoric when it comes to you know, eliminating, destroying ISIS, you're saying that we'll probably still see a limited war, you know, focused on counterterrorism and and airstrikes as opposed to boots on the ground so you know more so support for local forces and kind of letting them take the brunt of the action at least in iraq because i suppose if uh, the u.s pulls back support for the rebel forces in syria then it, it might just further limit its role in that conflict yeah exactly i mean the risk of uh, the u.s doing less i guess is that it loses some influence in what happens in syria after the civil war but um, I think it's very difficult to see Trump taking more of an active role um, in that civil war and really in any Middle Eastern conflict once he comes into office. I mean, uh, there's 
a very strong isolationist streak in a lot of his rhetoric. And I think there's very little appetite um, on top of that within the U.S. for another um, extended involvement uh, like boots on the ground uh, in any of those situations. So I can definitely see um, more drones. I can definitely see counterterrorism. Um, definitely cooperation with other regional actors on the ground, including non-state actors like the Kurds in Iraq and Syria, um, different rebel groups. But, you know, I can't see any more um, overt intervention by the U.S. in any of these cases. So building off that point, um, support for the Kurds, how do you see that potentially um, uh, entering into conflict with some of Turkey's positions? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think this has been a longstanding uh, thorn in Turkey's side, the fact that the U.S. Uh, for a long time was supporting Kurdish rebels uh, in Syria and, um, you know, a nominally independent Kurdistan in Iraq. And any support that uh, these groups got and any strength that they gained as a result um, obviously threatened Turkey, given its own problem with Kurdish separatists and really the renewal of what had been a decades-long um, civil war, essentially a uprising almost, with the Kurds in its country. So um, Turkey's role as a frontline NATO member state been at the forefront for a lot of the intervention in Syria, um, but I think there's a fundamental contradiction in U.S. or any Western support to Kurdish rebel groups, uh, given that, you know, their end goal is really setting up an autonomous, if not independent, uh, region, uh, whatever happens after this civil war. And so it's an ongoing question um, what role Turkey will play and um, what role the U.S. has in motivating them and encouraging them to join any Western efforts in there. Well, I think that's all the time that we have today. Um, a big thanks to our guest, Uri uh, Morantz. Thank you for joining us. So we appreciate your perspective and your, your uh, fortune-telling for our listeners. <laughs> thank you. Pleasure. I guess. Thank you, Uri. I think we covered uh, a couple interesting topics for sure, and we'll all be eagerly waiting uh, to see what will happen in the next couple of years with the Trump administration and in the Middle East, as well as in other regions of the world. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. If you have any feedback, comments, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or reach us on Facebook or Twitter. So as always, this episode would not have been possible without the multitude of people behind the scenes. Uh, we want to give a quick thanks to our research team who put together uh, the episode. Chris Brodkin, Mark Hyken, Juhi Sohani, as well as our technical crew, Samrin Roy, and Megan Boisjali, as well as our wonderful producer, Joe Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Matt. And I'm Nicole. This is Policy Talks.